Empowered Health, a podcast shedding light on how healing is an inside job. Keys to your inner power and total transformation. Discussing wholeness, wellness, and the effects of the mind on the physical and energetic parts of our being. A podcast to support you, moving from fear and pain into wellness and purpose. Belief, hope, connection, energetic keystones for transformation and inner power. Sacred knowledge that inspires us to look within, to find our own unique path. Empowered health, release and rewire to become what you truly are, strong, whole, and empowered. Hi everyone, it's Jane and Shell, your naturopathic doctors, here to inspire and educate you and support you on your journey. Today we have Nadia Bakir. Welcome Nadia. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nadia Bakir is a licensed naturopathic doctor and a homeopath in Ontario, a mother of two and a strong advocate for humanitarian medicine. She received her Bachelor of Science from the University of Toronto. She has a naturopathic degree from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine. She has a Master's of Health Science from the University of Central Lanchetire a homeopathy diploma from OCHM. She's a teacher of educational programs at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. Dr. Bakir is passionate about sharing knowledge and has extensive experience as an educator and healthcare facilitator. Her teaching career spans 25 years with the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, where she held the positions, head of homeopathy, associate professor, curriculum advisor, and clinic supervisor. She designed and participated in research and published homeopathic provings and clinical cases. An expert in her field, Dr. Fakir is known for her innovative and motivational teaching style. She's been in private practice since 1989. Dr. Fakir works with clients to identify and treat the root cause of their illness, and she believes in a comprehensive model of healthcare that is systems-based, integrative, and patient-centered. Welcome, Nadia. Thank Nadia, you very much, I appreciate it. That is such an impressive bio. Um, oh, thank so you. happy to have you here. Um, can you tell us how you became interested in homeopathy? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, so it started when I was um, at the naturopathic school. I joined the college in 1985, came straight out of U of T Sciences. And I was really hardcore into nutrition, very interested in uh, traditional Chinese medicine. I was fascinated with the 3,000 year old 
Chinese medical system. We had a fantastic teacher, Dr. Lam. And I remember thinking, this is how I'm going to practice. And then, uh, and then we were introduced to um, homeopathy and a few other modalities at the college. And I just thought, great, that's, uh, you know, interesting, but really not the area I'm going to be focusing on. Um, and a third year into the college, um, which would, would have been my, uh, let's see, three, six, six years of really hard, hard um, dedication to studying and literally like seven days a week of working hard from university into the college, I hit a wall. I hit chronic fatigue. I couldn't even lift my arm. I couldn't read a sentence. And I go, what's happening? So that I went to the clinic, like a good naturopathic student to get treated. I thought I'm going to use the medicine that I'm going to spend my lifetime learning, uh, applying. And I did uh, nutrition. I did traditional Chinese medicine. I did tons of acupuncture needles and I saw lots of colleagues improve but I was not getting the results I expected and I thought oh no I can't practice this medicine if I don't heal myself so I kept trying and then one of my colleagues or classmates said uh, Maddie you know what you should go see this particular uh, naturopath he's very good he heals people I said okay well what does he do and she said he does homeopathy and my eyes just roll. I thought, homeopathy, you got to be kidding me. That's not what I want to do. She says, just go see him. But I got to backtrack a second because when I, when I was introduced to homeopathy in second year, um, just the concept of you take this little pellet and it's going to shift your vital force and then all your symptoms are going to disappear was not, uh, I, I just wasn't buying it. And I had come from uh, UFT Sciences where the last course I took in third year was about the history of medicine. And our professor spent the whole two terms denying, antagonizing vitalism. I mean, it wasn't even a balanced course. It was all about vitalism does not exist. It's voodoo. It's not, you know, and so, and anyone who, anyone in the class, we had, I think a, a couple hundred students, anyone who put their arm, hand up and questioned him, would he would shoot them down. He was so sharp verbally. And, and so it was, so I was conditioned thinking, Vital force, no, doesn't exist. And this is not real, real science, not real medicine. So when we were introduced to homeopathy in second year, I would, I would just sit in class and go, right, <laughs> this is not even, you know, I'll just study hard and get my marks, but this is the last modality that I will be applying in my practice. And I'm not even going to bother. So third year, the universe really teaching me a lesson of humbleism when I went to see this naturopath who specialized in homeopathy, had him take my case because I was desperate. I was having to choose between seeing him or quitting, quitting the program and taking time off to recuperate. And he gave me my first remedy, took a two hour case, gave my first remedy. Next day I woke up and I thought I was in a dream. I couldn't believe how I felt. <laughs> then all the, the, all the teaching we had on homeopathy and all the times in class when I rolled my eyes and I denied what they were saying and this is not possible came to light and I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I ignored something so valuable. I can't believe this. I couldn't believe my, rea my response. I couldn't believe how I felt. Um, that was my first sort of the light bulb going off and going, okay, now I have to go back and take this seriously because why, why are we not focusing on vital force? Why, why is science, you know, all the questions about in your university when we took these courses and they're saying there's no such thing as a field and mind body doesn't exist. That was in the 1980s. 
So it opened my eyes and um, it, was, uh, it was a real um, awakening for me. That started the process, but it wasn't enough to convince me yet that I wasn't going to be doing traditional Chinese medicine, which I was planning when I graduate and fly out to Vancouver, get my BC license, go to China, do six months in a hospital, doing 100 cases a day, come back, open up a practice in Vancouver. And then, uh, so I was on that trajectory. And this is after I graduated. Um, I got a call because I had applied, I also applied for the residency with this particular doctor in homeopathy. He was going to take one person from the profession. And I applied for the residency and thought, there's no way I'm going to get this. So I'll continue on my plan to do TCM. If I get the call, then I will change my career and focus just on homeopathy. I knew I didn't want to do two major systems in medicine. I wanted to become an expert in one. So I got the call in the middle of my exams in BC. I'm taking you as a resident. And, and part of me is like, really? No, you can't be. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't come back to Toronto. And the other part was, oh my God, I got the residency. And that was it. That was when I gave up my TCM dream and went back and sat with this doctor for two years next to him, watching case after case. Because he had a reputation of helping so many people in terminal illness, I got to see firsthand just how much healing you can achieve with homeopathy alone. That experience was priceless. You can't put a price on it. What he taught me, what I saw, what I witnessed in practice so early in my practice. And after that, I thought, this is all I want to do. This is all I want to focus on. This is amazing. And uh, that's, uh, that's how, what led me to you know, start teaching and, and continue practicing for this, <laughs> this long. Yeah. For me, it was when you took us to India and we saw all these cases that weren't helped in traditional medicine, you know, helped with homeopathy. And I always believed in mind body medicine. So it just was like the perfect thing for me to follow. Oh, yeah. That and that experience. So students going to India, like the best thing you could have done was go into more debt and go to India to see homeopathy <laughs> because right. yeah, because what students saw in two weeks, you, you couldn't even put in a year of experience at the college because you saw population of people who a lot of them couldn't afford, thank God, the type of conventional medicine that we, we give people here. And they would come in with conditions like tuberculosis, cancer, um, autoimmune disease that they have no, no ability to, to be treated conventionally. And they would see a homeopath and they would, the homeopath would treat them and would reverse. We saw x-rays of tubercules in the lungs disappear. And we were told in medicine, when we were studying pathology, right, we were told you can't reverse tuberculosis in the lung. Once you have tuberculosis, the scars are there for life. So that was, I think that was so inspiring. For me too, going there with students inspired me just as much as you guys. Right. And just recently I had a horse um, had an infection in his joint and the vet told me there was no way I could heal it. And North American medicine also relayed the same information. I had to do heavy antibiotics. So the first thing I did was call Divya, who's in India, because there they treat these things. They don't always jump to allopathic medicine. And so my horse is healed and alive today and doing amazing. Well. Yeah. So yeah. Use their experience because that's, yeah. Nadia, can you explain to people who are listening who haven't experienced the miracles of homeopathy what you mean by vital force? Sure. Okay. So we have a, a healing energy within us. Vital force is another word for the healing energy that. The energy that if you cut your skin, 
and you start to bleed, your body will start to clot the blood and create a scar and heal that area. Well, what tells it to do that? It's not your mind. It's not your soul, your spirit. Something communicates to that area of the body to start triggering the healing response. So we have an energy within us. Think of it as an energy, a vital force, something that informs our body to heal when it needs. Mm -hmm. Like our chi in Chinese medicine. Our chi thickens becomes a chronic illness where symptoms don't, don't go away. That means that particular energy or healing force has been overwhelmed and isn't able to recuperate. It isn't able to regain equilibrium. And this is where we need to now treat it on a level of the same homeopathy or some form of energetic medicine, acupuncture works with meridians to try and, uh, to try and uh, influence or stimulate that force to work again. It's like it's stuck. It doesn't know how to move forward. And homeopathy is that one uh, system of medicine that is very successful in doing this in when it recognizes. So let me start with, first of all, how homeopaths um, understand disease. Disease is, um, is basically a state of out of balance. If you consider your body as a complex adaptive system, and every millisecond you are responding to stress without even knowing it, your body adapts seamlessly. So it could be a smell in the air, a molecule, a sound. You don't even notice that you've, you've overcome that stress. The second you experience a sign or symptom means that the body was overwhelmed and is now in a state of reacting to the, the stimulus. If it overcome, it, it regains equilibrium and the, and the symptom goes away, then you successfully reacted to the stimulus and now you're back on your feeling seamless and no, no symptoms or signs. If the symptom or sign doesn't go away, that's the reflection of the imbalance. That's the reflection of where your body got stuck, your vital force wasn't able to overcome that stimulus. And that becomes a part of your symptom picture. And the more signs and symptoms you have, the more this is a, is a reflection informing us of the pattern of imbalance. It's really a, an off frequency if you want to think of it that way. When you can recognize, so homeopathy will look at the whole picture, so every sign and symptom is a reflection, including on the mind, physical, and emotional level is a reflection of this pattern of imbalance. If we can recognize the pattern and we recognize this in a homeopathic remedy and we match the remedy based on a law in nature called law of similars, like cures like, we give the person that remedy, then it triggers a response that reverses that process and the symptoms and signs disappear on multiple levels. So how we know someone is healing is that first of all, the last symptom to appear is the first to disappear. And they start to see a change on many levels, not just their physicals, their emotional, their mental, their, they even will say, I feel my energy's back. I feel like I'm, I'm young again. I feel like I'm, I'm inspired without that had been your objective. Your objective was to treat their eczema or their high blood pressure, right? But it's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's part of that complex adaptive systems pattern of imbalance. And then the body regains equilibrium. So the, so the vital force is what helps us get there. How can we help it? How can we support it? As opposed to try and take over and just, you know, bandage the body. That's what we want to do. And that's what homeopathy is so good at doing. And um, as well as other energy systems of medicine, but homeopathy is one brilliant way to do it. Mm -hmm. How do we learn what these homeopathic substances, how do we learn about them? Can you explain provings and how we develop yes. our medica? Absolutely. Great question. So it all started, if I go back to uh, about 230 years ago with Dr. Samuel Hahnemann, um, he's the German doctor, brilliant guy, 
Um, he knew 11 languages and was teaching medical school before he graduated. Um, and just wanted to show him off because he was way ahead of his time for medicine. And when he was in medicine back then, 230, 40 years ago, um, they were doing mostly bloodletting and mercury poisoning and things like this. And he found he was losing half of his patients. Like it was a 50-50 chance you would die if you got bloodlet to, to weaken your body so the symptom disappear. And he realized in his practice that um, because he's a very ethical, moral person and studied philosophy and all that, that this isn't medicine. And so he decided to quit medicine and he was going to go on a mission to discover real cure. So um, to feed his family of, I think, nine or 10 children at the time, he went and used his skills in 11 languages and transcribed um, medical books in library. Mm. And through the process of transcribing uh, from different languages, different cultures, he started to see a common commonality between all these different um, cultures in the law of similars. And he thought, this is a law of nature that keeps coming up. And these are between cultures that haven't communicated with each other. So it must be a, uh, an undisputable law. Let me test it. If it's true, then it will be true today as it was back then when these cultures were writing about it. So he tested using quinine. He took small doses of, you know, quinine was a treatment for malaria. And he thought, if the law of similars is correct, then if I take quinine, I'll start to produce symptoms of uh, fever and chills like malaria. And uh, lo and behold, he started doing that daily dose and he developed malarial symptoms. And when he stopped quinine, the symptoms disappeared. And that was his first introduction to a lot of similars. And he decided, okay, well, let's do provings. Let's take substances um, over a period of time, record the symptoms they produce in our body, and then we can discover what they can cure. But at the same time, he realized that if you take the substance that's a poison or something toxic, it could harm you while you're taking it. So how do we produce, try to get the information to the body of the substance without harming ourselves? So he started doing, and he had, I mean, no one knows what made him jump to succussion and dilution because he was very knowledgeable in alchemy and chemistry and physics. Something inspired him to start diluting the substance and succussing in between. Succussing meaning if you dilute, then you shake it or you beat the, the solution um, anywhere from five times, 50 times. He experimented. He found 100 times is the most optimal therapeutic number of uh, succussions. So he would dilute one in 100, succuss 100 times, dilute one in 100 again until he got to, just to give you an idea and appreciation of how dilute that is, if you go to a potency of 3C, you've gone to one in a million dilution. When you get to a potency of 12C of the substance, you're now beyond Avogadro's number. You can't even measure a molecule, but it becomes more therapeutically effective. And um, even though he didn't have the advanced uh, tools to measure how this is actually working, now we know it's part nanoparticles that are picked up in the uh, outer orbit of the electron shifts when you dilute and succuss. Um, he, he was able to empirically show, so everything was based on proving in, in the field and practice, that this was effective therapeutically. So when he diluted and succussed, he found it had a bigger effect in the proving, so people would produce more symptoms without the toxicity. And so all his provings were made homeopathic dose, so ethically without harming anybody, but very powerful because he brought out the information that su that substance is known to help in, in, in um, disease. Um, and just to backtrack for a sec, law of similars, if you want to give it a definition, is basically whatever substance produces symptoms in a healthy person will cure the same symptoms in a sick person. So that's the, the basic idea of law of similars. 
And so these, these provings are made on, on healthy individuals, volunteers, who come in with the intention to bring out information of a substance, um, not take it on to themselves, like continue with it. And the, with the provings we do nowadays are double blind. So we have 30%, usually 33% placebo. So we separate what could be placebo from what actually the proving brings out. And we publish these provings to build our materia medica. So all the remedies that we use in homeopathy are tested on human beings, not on animals. And they're done ethically, morally, and everything is empirically based, which is beautiful because there's no, there's very little rationale thinking, oh, this sounds like it'll work. Let's try it. No, we actually have the information from the proving um, that we can use to confirm that this, you know, this would be a, an appropriate remedy for a particular patient with that complex of disease symptoms let alone the fact that it costs very little and that we can help so many with one leaf of a plant or yes, exactly. a mineral. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. I think this is why uh, maybe Big Pharma hasn't really um, jumped on the bandwagon to support homeopathy. And ju just on that note, very good point, Jane. Um, I don't know how many people are aware of in Cuba, and I think this this was going back when they had the leptospirosis breakouts, where millions of people, um, when they have floods, leptospirosis is a is a parasite that could kill people. And in Cuba, because of the American embargo, they didn't have access to drugs, and the pharmaceutical um, industry was very limited. And so the government accepted um, homeopathy treatment for their population because it was basically pennies per person. And when they, they, there were two particular outbreaks of leptospirosis that involved, I think it was a population, maybe if it was half a million or a couple of million, it was a large part of the Cuban population, where they gave doses of, um, of homeopathic remedy that they thought would be useful uh, as a prophylactic for these, uh, the people um, in the areas of the flood. And they, the death rate dropped something between 8 to 90% historically compared to when they had these leptospirosis outbreaks without homeopathy. They realized just how effective homeopathy was. And this is published information. People can access this on, on in medical journals. You don't see the media all over it. You don't see this being promoted. But just on what you were saying, they can afford uh, the drugs for these, this population, but the, the homeopathy saved lives and was affordable, pennies per person. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to ask about the homeopathic medicine carcinosin, which is the energy of breast cancer and how yeah. it can be used in patients with breast cancer. Um, okay, so not all cases of breast cancer require this remedy. Just, you know, like when you when we look at every cancer case, we have to look at, again, it's, everyone's a complex adaptive system. You're an individual um entity that got to, to the end, end stage or the end game of, of the cancer, but how you got there is very individual. So there are a lot of possible remedies that could come up in cancer cases. But one good example of a remedy we have is carcinosin is made from the breast tissue of, um, that's been um, uh, overtaken by cancer. And the idea in cancer is if you just try to understand what cancer is, cancer is basically a specialized cell that's forgotten its identity. It doesn't know what it's supposed to do and it becomes a simple replicating cell. Now, depending where that cell occurs, this cancer formation, if it's in a very vital part of your organ, like if it's, for example, in the liver, 
then you can't live without a liver. So if that cancer spreads and the liver forgets what it's supposed to do, all the individual cells, then you, that would kill you just by the fact that you won't have a functioning liver. So cancer is a part of you. It's not a disease that, the pathogen that comes into you. It's a part of you that loses connection with itself, its identity. And it becomes just simple replication. So in breast tissue, and every tissue the cancer evolves in, we believe has, represents something about the person. So breast has to do with nurturing and love, self-love. And um, oftentimes you see breast cancer and come up with idea that, uh, the person was missing that, that in their life. There's always a connection somehow with that. Um, but, but what's a common, um, common denominator for all cancer is that the idea is a person now loses who they are. They become so, their identity becomes consumed by what's expected of them and they forget what their purpose is, who they're supposed to be. And so when, you, when the person starts doing that, then they develop a disease because you're off balance when you do that. You're not being yourself. You're not developing your potential. You'll develop a condition that's going to reflect that. And cancer is a perfect example of this, where the cell forgets its identity and becomes simple replicating. And then we treat it by uh, using a remedy that will help the person reconnect with the lost, what they lost. So um, I think I went on a big trajectory there. <laughs> That's so interesting. And sometimes for people, it's what they've lost. And for other people, they haven't even discovered it yet. Yes. Opportunity to figure out who they are and what their purpose is. That's, that's exactly correct. Yeah, we have, um, we have, we, when we discuss remedies, we, every remedy has a personality and a constitution. The personality of Carson Osom is someone who's a pleaser and uh, becomes whatever the, the person who's a dominating person in their life wants them to become. So often that starts in childhood to have a, a dominating parent or dominating parents that basically don't allow the child to individuate and, be, and make their own mistakes and become, figure themselves out. They decide you're going to fit this mold. This is what you are meant to be. So the child isn't able to individuate and figure out who they are they don't get connected to their identity they become whatever their that strong dominating parental role wants them to become they fill the shell then they get to be a successful adult we see them successful in their career but they don't know who they are and then they come to a point where they develop a cancer and the cancer depending on where it is just represents this loss of identity they've disconnected with who they are and that part of their body now is just growing into something else something simple, replicating, not individuated, not specialized. So if we can identify that and work with that, then you can, you know, help the person in their journey, healing journey effectively. Yeah, because a remedy brings you more in alignment with who you are and what your purpose is and in connection to your heart. So you're naturally going to create more vital force and start to heal what needs to be healed. Nadia, can you describe mind-body? This is a mind-body medicine, and it takes mind symptoms as much as body symptoms. Maybe, can we look at it in a way of a damaging belief that you had, that you overcame, and how you know you felt different after a remedy? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I'll start with uh, my, my understanding through years of practice and my own personal experience is that the body is just a mirror of your inner state. 
the body doesn't break down and develop disease just for randomly or spontaneously for no reason. That's illogical. The body just mirrors. It's, a, it's one side. It's one side of the same coin mirroring the process that we are stuck in. So disease begins, and we. This is not just um, true in homeopathy, but in a lot of other. Um, complementary healthcare systems of medicine believe the same thing. Pathology starts with our perception, our perception of our reality. When the perception is, is, is not real, when the perception is false, then we start to develop the symptoms that reflect that perception, false perception of our reality. So for example, if someone has, um, if someone has uh, uh, the perception that, there's their life is is uh very restricted that they feel pressure and they feel constricted and they don't have a lot of choice and they're stuck they will develop in their body eventually if they, if they keep this perception long enough they'll develop symptoms in their body that reflect that so if they're feeling stuck if they can't move forward they may develop multiple sclerosis or they may develop uh if they're feeling pressure they develop high blood pressure or pressure migraines so that again the body's just reflecting the, the experience you have on, uh, on your perception of your stress and your reality. Um, and if you want to get in touch with that, if you, if, some, if you see someone in practice coming in with, let's say, a, a diagnosis of a condition, and you ask them, how, what's it like to live with this condition? They will tell you exactly the words that reflect their false perception of their reality. It'll, it'll go right back to that. And then you ask, so for example, I have a patient coming in and I ask them, um, how, uh, describe, you know, the pain of your, of your migraine and say, I feel like someone is stabbing me in the eye. And then I asked, and what's it like to live with these migraines? I feel limited. I feel controlled. I feel like I can't live my life. And then you ask them, when is the first time you ever experienced control? And they'll, they'll go back to the original trauma and they'll say, uh, they wouldn't, may not even connect it initially, but they'll say, oh, I'm 20 years ago or when I was you know, I don't know, when I was 12 years old or something, someone did this to me and, I, and they never recovered. They experienced it the same way. So um, there's always going to be an, an, a root to it, an origin. If it's not in their lifetime, it could also be a, in generational. Like if their parents went through the Holocaust and they're experiencing symptoms of what their parents experienced preconception. So if I bring it to myself, um, well, there's so many examples I can use. Um, I, I remember, okay, like this is an acute injury, but it, it actually was, it took six months to heal. Uh, I was feeling, I was doing a lot in my life. I was, I was teaching in clinic, raising my kids. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I feel like I'm taking on so much. I feel out of balance. I feel out of balance. I got to make a change, but I just kept going, ignoring it. And then I was, um, I was doing the sport uh, to try and relieve some stress. And it was, I was playing basketball. I went up for a shot and I came down and that had the worst third degree strain in my ankle ever in my life I've ever experienced or seen in someone like my ankle ballooned out to the same size as my knee and i remember sitting there going i was just saying how off balance i was and then i twist my ankle and my ankle forced me to be bedridden literally bedridden and, and immobile slow everything down for six months i actually needed crutches for my ankle and I remember thinking, this is a wake-up call. This is my energy. I created this. This is not a random accident. 
I was feeling so off balance and I wasn't addressing it. And now I have time. I'm sitting on my butt, not able to do what I normally do and have to think about my life and how I can, you know, get the balance I'm missing and what I can let go of and what I can t- tackle. So just a yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you picked a remedy that matched that as well as the, the strain in your ankle. Yes, it had to be not just a remedy for the strain, but one that represented both feeling off balance, doing too much, um, not listening to my needs, and as well as the physical pain. And, and remedies have both. When you, when you study a remedy, even if we use for sport injury, it has a personality profile that represents uh, the injury as well as the physical injury and the personality. So we always look at both. You, you really can't separate mind and body because when you understand the body's a reflection of your perception of your reality and your mental state and emotional state, then you know that there there's, it's one continuum. Yeah. My, my quick story is when in my twenties I would get hemorrhoids and as a child I was forced out of the, I felt forced out of the community. And so I still carried that energy. And when I learned about homeopathy, I think I had another bad case of hemorrhoids. <laughs> They're very painful. <laughs> and I healed it with aloe and the whole story the whole family is Lily being forced out yeah exactly yes aloe is definitely yeah you're like yeah, you're you were part of something and then you're out of it now that's the Lily family totally yeah amazing and yeah. we have like I think we have something like like hundreds of remedies for hemorrhoids so you know people think well just give me the hemorrhoid remedy it doesn't work like that this is mm-hmm. you gotta look at what the hemorrhoids represent what is that part of your body trying to tell you? I once had a, we had a patient when I was supervising clinic. Um, she had the shoulder pain, the right shoulder pain, and we were trying to understand what it represented because it wasn't like she had an injury or a sport. And so we, uh, we did something unique where we just had her, had her speak from her shoulder. Like we said, when you close your eyes, we took her through meditation and just said, we want to give your shoulder a voice and let it tell us what, it's, what it wants to say, what that part of your body is trying to tell you. And she did. She closed her eyes and was able to go into that meditation. And she said her shoulder represented her not very healthy relationship with her boyfriend, which was weighing her down. And when she realized that, she broke the relationship and her shoulder pain went away. We didn't give her a remedy at that point. (laughs) But it was a very good example of just how the body is just trying to give us a message, trying to tell us what's happening. Now, if she went to a conventional doctor, she would get a painkiller or an anti-inflammatory. And really wouldn't would just shut the body off from speaking to you, right? Without really dealing with the issue. So we need to understand what the body's trying to tell us. And we need to be prepared to actually listen because I know even with my own healing, sometimes we know what delusion or what perspective we need to shift and we keep it stuck there anyway for comfort or survival or some sort of obstacle that's in our way, which we see with homeopathy, having like, what are the obstacles to cure? Yes, absolutely. So it's, it's awareness and then, and willing to hear what the body is telling you, but have to be aware that your body is speaking to you. It's, it's like if you're driving a car and your oil signal goes off, are you going to just break the oil signal and say, okay, we solved it or find out what the signal is trying to tell you. So imagine how much, healing we can accomplish if we taught medicine if we help people understand their body is working with them it's just cry it's a cry for help 
and it's not trying to create pain for you to suffer. It's trying to get your attention <laughs> to address something you're not looking at. Like that ankle that I sprained, I was in tears and I was so frustrated. And I realized if I don't surrender to this, if I keep fighting and think, oh my God, now I can't work out, now I can't work, and I can't walk, I can't do this, I'm just going to get worse. And the inflammation will, will I realize, is just, just going to, um, I'm not, I'm not really dealing with it if I do that. And when I listen to what my body's telling me and I surrender to, and I thought, okay, I know I brought this on. What am I not listening to? Um, I, I can go into a lot of other things, but we'll let you ask the next question. And often it happens for our highest good, but we don't realize it in the moment. Now, yes. Nadia, you also talk about the pivot point. Can you describe yes, that? Yes, pivotal point. Okay, that was, oh my God, what a breakthrough. I think it was 10 years into my practice. Um, I did. I went to do a, a retreat with Luke Klein, and the retreat was based on ten homeopaths, um, naturopaths, and homeopaths bringing their really tough cases, and we all talk about where why we're stuck on these cases. And we we came to after two weeks of working with our cases, we came to realize some a very very practical idea in practice um, is that our role in medicine in healing is to bring someone to. People come in, they're stuck. They're stuck somewhere. They feel like they're stuck in their lives. They're stuck in their disease. And the idea is to free them, to, give, to bring them to a place where they feel they have a choice. That choice, we call it the pivotal point when you can have 360 degrees, look around and go, okay, I have a choice now. I see what's happening. That choice is their spiritual decision, not ours. So, for example, the best example that I can give you is I, I had a very difficult case. I was working with paranoid schizophrenia. This person was suicidal. I would get two, three calls a day. And I was there thinking, I got to save this person. I got, you know, they had trauma. There's reasons why they were, were where they were. And I, it was two years of very hard work with this client. And I and even consulted uh, two of my teachers. I was constantly changing the remedy, making sure, because there were layers that we were just working with. And this patient, um, very, by the way, brilliant man I was treating in, in his late 20s, uh, came to a point where he felt he was out of it. He was going to be able to uh, function in society and continue his life in a way more balanced way. And he came to realize that because he told me, he said, wow, I feel like I'm now actually in myself, like who I need to be. And then he decided he wanted to go camping and he was going to abuse substances, which he's not a candidate for substance abuse because it would, it would, you know, if you know anything about schizophrenia and paranoia, uh, consuming um, recreational drugs will set you right back. And um, he was just missing it, he said. And I said, told him, I don't think it's a good idea. It's your decision. But if you do, and we're talking about like, he was gonna go for a month. It wasn't just a weekend. If you do that, I don't know if I can help. You'll relapse, and I don't know if I can bring you back. And he, I, he said he's going to take 24 hours to, to decide. And he made the decision, I'm deciding I want to go camping, and I want to do this. And then I had to let him go. And he came back. I didn't hear from him, actually, six months later. I get a code orange on his file because he was on the street. He, he relapsed fully. He wasn't able to contact me. He relapsed and he was on the street and they had to, um, he did something um, horrifying to his body and they had, he was an emergency and they, they called the code orange, meaning they want all the files from all the practitioners 
to uh, to look at what's happening in this case. And I was never able to work with him again. He, he was lost. That was it. Gone. And I struggle with that. Um, and then when we, we discover the pivotal point, you come to a point, you bring a patient to a point where they have a choice. And the choice they make is their spiritual decision. If they want to continue on the trajectory they're doing, that's not your responsibility. And it was a very hard lesson to learn. But since I, since we, at that particular retreat, we came to understand that it's really helped me in my practice and really helped me let go and let patients decide, um, make their decisions for themselves. It's not up to me. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned, um, uh, I used to mention in my, in class teaching too, I had a case of a, a nurse, retired nurse who had stomach cancer and her husband had died a year before her kids were all happily married and she came to me and I was treating her, trying to save her for her stomach cancer. And she came to me on the third visit and said, I don't want you to save me. I'm ready to go. I just don't want to suffer with pain. Please don't try and save me. That was another, that was another um, uh, awakening for me. It's like, wow, okay. You know, it's not my decision. I have to respect her decision. And she did. She passed away peacefully at home without a morphine drip, unheard of, with stomach cancer. And all she got was homeopathic remedies. And it was, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Respect personal choice and to give people the power to decide. But even, even hearing this, if I was a patient, I would, I would realize I'm more in control of my pivot point than I think, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really good information. And then yeah. at the end of the day, we have to take responsibility for our own choices and our own healing. You know the people. And that's exactly part of yeah. That's part of your healing is help people to take that responsibility. It's taking their power back, taking their power back, and and letting them realize that they have the power to choose. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's that's part of the healing. If they don't get that, I believe if they don't feel that they have that choice, they haven't healed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, many people don't feel like they have choice in life, even if it's some sort of delusion they feel like they have to stay in this job to keep this house or they have to take these chemotherapies or radiation because they don't want to die and leave their children i think a lot of our thinking disempowers our perception to realize that we do have choices exactly shelly and that's where that's why we see that people come to us because they're stuck and this is our that's where i believe a, a healer's job is to help them realize they have a choice just get the energy moving get them flowing again just so them. they can keep, keep things in motion that's how we we evolve and that's we need to stay in motion as soon as we get stuck then that's where we start to see symptoms form and okay. uh, and it's just a reflection of where we're stuck and like you were saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. And yes. so being stuck is very frustrating. And what's, and what's even the most frustrating is when you don't realize you're stuck. Right. They have this, they have this saying where uh, people can be unconsciously incompetent. <laughs> and hard to get yourself out of something you're unconscious about. So bringing consciousness to where people are at in their lives on a deep level where they're where they're where their pathology what it really represents and then giving them a choice 
once you get that consciousness, now you know you have a choice. And you do whatever it takes to get out of that. And, and sometimes the, the decision to save your life may mean you're going to create pain somewhere else. But you got to save your life because if you don't save your life, it doesn't matter. So, for example, some people say, um, I just don't have the money to do that treatment. I will say, get in debt. This is your life on the line. Whatever it costs, do what you need to do because if you don't save your life, it doesn't matter what money you have. <laughs> So do what it takes. Take whatever measure it will without causing harm to anyone else. But use your resources. Maximize that. Do everything you can to get yourself out of that, you know, the pit you're in. If it means you're going to get scratches or, you know, get a cut somewhere or, or bruise or physical, you know, climb out of a pit, you save your life, you do it. Or disappoint other people. You know, a lot of, like you were saying, the cancer miasm. Yes. Pleasing other people, denying self-identity. You know, sometimes we have to empower our cancer patients to disappoint other people. And do it. Go yeah. ahead and do it. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Yes. They have to, you have to get that self-love back. There's, I learned something interesting um, also in practice is there's good selfishness and bad selfishness. And good selfishness involves taking care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, then you can't truly love someone else and take care of them because it's, it's a different form of love. It's not what root in true love is you start by loving yourself. And from there, then love grows and you can spread it to people around you. So if you're doing for others and not loving yourself, then you're not truly, truly loving because you're sacrificing yourself and love starts with loving first you. Um, it's like when you're in an airplane, they say, take the air mask and give it to yourself first and then save people around you. It has to start with you. So um, very true. And you brought up an interesting word we use in homeopathy, myasm. Uh, I don't think we brought it, brought it up in this discussion in case people don't know what myasm is. In homeopathy, we, we look at inherent disease. So uh, if someone inherits a condition that sort of runs in the family, it could be a personality trait could be a personality trait with physical symptoms or signs or predisposition for certain diseases. We call these miasms. It's not just a genetic phenomena because genetic is limited to only what DNA mutations show, but it's actually a complex of signs and symptoms that tends to run in families. Like someone may say, oh, that person has um, their dad's disposition of irritability and impatience, or um, could be that there's uh, could be even just a condition of migraines running this family. So they could be representative of what we call myism you inherit. You're not born with a clean slate. You're born with predispositions that may or may not be expressed in your life, depending on how much stress you experience. And when we can recognize myism, we also include that in our analysis of homeopathic remedies for, for patients. It's part of the imbalance we talk about. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then it becomes like a piece of the puzzle. And once you get all the pieces, you can see a remedy that would really help the individual. Yes, the more clues, the better. And, and I love that example you gave of the puzzle because to see a picture of a puzzle, you don't need 100% of the pieces. If you have 70%, you can see the picture. And that's what we do in homeopathy. We try and get as many pieces or clues to the case. And we often don't get 100%. But if we have 70 or 80%, we know the remedy now. We see the picture and we can apply the remedy. Yeah. 
and it's such an individual medicine. That's why you and homeopaths spend up to even more sometimes of two hours to get to really understand the individual. Yeah, very individualized. Uh, people are unique, their way of thinking, their, uh, their experiences, their perception of things, their family inheritance. It builds, it's a, it's, you can have 10 people with hypertension and they each need a different remedy. That's why we have so many different remedies for the same condition because how they got there isn't the same. And, and that tip of the iceberg may look the same on the surface, but underneath you've got a different picture of every iceberg. And this is, this is exactly how disease is. Disease symptoms and signs are just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Nadia, can you explain with us how homeopathy can release trauma? So, yes. So our cells um, experience, when we experience trauma, so if we experience abuse, um, whether directly or indirectly, and it's repeated, our cells can retain the memory of that trauma and they keep playing it like a broken record. And eventually those cells will develop signs and symptoms representing the trauma. So for example, I'm uh, currently treating a patient with multiple sclerosis. They've been diagnosed with atypical multiple sclerosis. Whenever you get atypical, it means not what you expect. The MRIs are not what's expected, but the symptoms show uh, enough symptoms to show that it's close enough to that condition. They have to give it a diagnosis. So uh, he's slowly losing his function. And motor, multiple sclerosis and motor neuron disease means that you're not able to move the way fluidly as you normally would, but you don't feel pain. It's just motor neuron, which is the sensory nerves for, uh, sorry, not sensory, but motor nerves for movement. Um, and his life was, a, was very traumatic because he was constantly reprimanded by his father and told that he was no good and he's not capable of doing uh, being successful and punished a lot and his his feeling was he was paralyzed he was um uh, uh felt like he was not able to move forward because of all the pressures father put on him um and so the remedy he's, he's being given is one of feeling that someone who's been controlled and manipulated in a way where they feel they cannot move. And so he is the, getting in touch with um, uh, the emotions are coming up of anger, rage. And as the emotions are being released, he's gaining movement again. So this is part of when you give a remedy and you see um, anything that's been suppressed starts to come up. It could come up emotionally or through their dreams it's part of the healing process because now you, the subconscious, which is retaining these, these negative emotions and patterning is starting to connect to the conscious state and release them in process. Um, so as he's releasing those traumas and they're, and it's not necessarily comfortable, healing isn't always comfortable because when you release, you may feel um, uncomfortable uh, emotions. Um, he's starting to get his control back physically which is, you know, you consider in medicine a miracle, or we often say spontaneous remission. <laughs> oh, you're going through spontaneous remission. Actually, no, I'm going through some deep healing. Um, so trauma is embedded in our cells, and our cells can retain that for years. And if you really want to help someone move forward and heal, they have to release that. It's important to release it. But the, the beautiful thing about the body is when you use homeopathy, 
it'll the body will release it in a way that a person can manage it's not like they'll be out of control and it's too much and then and they go into a crisis the body knows what to do how to do it at the best rate it knows how so when a patient comes to me and they've had trauma going 30 years in their life and they ask me how long will it take for me to to heal once i get a remedy i see it's very individual your body the most important thing is we find the remedy that matches you we trigger this healing and then we have to now respect the body knows the best rate at, at healing possible for you. Because if we try and speed things up, which we can't anyways, homeopathy, but you try to force healing, you're going to create, you can create more trauma or a person can go into shock. So that's another um, in, uh, level of individuality is people's rate at which they heal very individual. And as long as you see movement, they're getting better and, and moving forward, that's the most important thing, healing in motion. Um, speeding this up, trying to control and manipulate that is just uh, not, not something that is recommended for empowering the body to do. The body knows it's like we, we need to respect the body has an intelligence and knows the best way that you could use to heal, heal yourself. <laughs> yeah, so we even listen to when to give the next dose. But it's not, yes. yeah, explain that. Yeah, repeating the remedy. Oh my God, this is, I'm so glad you brought this up. Because a lot of times the question is, when should I repeat the remedy? So what I like to do is I like to really take my time to explain to the patient how remedies work. Homeopathic remedies are catalysts. They kickstart a response. And as long as you're responding, there's no need to repeat the remedy. Repeating the remedy at that point doesn't make you better faster. It just makes you lose sensitivity to the information the remedy is providing. An example I like to use if you have a child and you tell the child to go clean up their room and they don't listen to the first dose. You repeat the dose and say, please clean up your room. They don't listen. Then you raise your voice to higher potency and then the child listens and goes to clean the room. To, to keep repeating, clean your room while they're cleaning their room is going to be useless. And what will happen is that the child will say, well, it doesn't matter if I clean my room or not. She's going to keep saying it, so I'm not going to do it. So you lose sensitivity to the message. And this is what happens is people take homeopathy, they may get a good response initially, and they go, oh, I love this response. Let me take some more. And then they lose sensitivity to it. They may even antidote. And then they go, oh, I was better, and now I'm not better. I don't know why it's not working. Because the application of the potency, how off the frequency of pathology is important. You have to individualize it. So teaching a client, a patient, to listen to their symptoms, be aware of their response and only repeat when that response comes to a plateau. We say, when you feel like you're not improving anymore, that's the best time to repeat the message because your body, it's not a magic bullet. Your body will come to a place where it's going to respond, then it forgets and it goes back to its familiar um, disharmonious pattern. And then you repeat the remedy and then you remind it to move forward again. And, and it keeps doing this until it forgets to go back. It doesn't go back to that pattern and just moves forward. But uh, that repetition of remedy is so important and many people don't understand it. And um, oftentimes it's, they're told to take the remedy way more frequently than they need to. Yeah, and mm -hmm. we all have the mindset of allopathic medicine that you take it three times a day for a week and you know that. Yeah, so that's biomedical model. So if you look at your, if you give some, a substance, a material dose that's gonna act on the body, then you're, you, give it at a, at, a, at a more frequent dose. But if you're working with the body's response, then let the body tell you when it needs it. 
So true. We're used to the biomedical approach. Nadia, I feel like we could learn so much from you. Do we have time for one more question? Yes, please. So we wanted to ask you how you would respond to a diagnosis in which you were given two years to live. Oh, I love that question. First of all, I wouldn't believe it because <laughs> nobody can play God. Nobody knows how long I will live. I decide. Uh, so I would definitely leave that paradigm and I'd, I'd find other answers somewhere else. I would, I would do some heavy duty researching into what it is, how I got to where I got and what are my options. I would, I would look everywhere. I would never give up and I decide how long I'll be here. <laughs> we love it yeah and we were we talking it. about how to leave no rock unturned do as much as you feel you need to do in every modality or every healing absolutely we are we have so many resources at our fingertips we have the world wide web we have information everywhere and it's up to us to use our critical thinking our own minds use our power of choice to decide our healthcare. And uh, I would stop at nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> That's so inspiring. We've absolutely loved seeing you and, and talking with you today, Nadia. Thank you so much for being with us. It's and, my pleasure. Thank you. And we also want to, um, like if people wanted to reach out to you, should we put an email address or something included in our description? Oh, thank you. Yeah, I have a website. Um, it's www.naturopathicpractice.com and people can access me through the website. Um, I'd be happy to. I offer um, uh, meet and greet, like 10, 15 minutes. People can just come and ask questions and see if, if I'm a good fit for them or if I can refer them to someone who may be more appropriate. I'm happy to do that too. That is wonderful. Yeah, we'll make sure that's included for everybody. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on board. I <laughs> uh, want to acknowledge your amazing information and we'll have you back for sure. And I want to share our slogan with everyone. Do not give away your power to anyone else. Just go be you. I love it. Thank you very much, guys. Great to see you. Thank you.